Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Since the S&P 500 hit its all-time high on 3rd of January, the stock market has fallen over 23%. With the benefit of hindsight, what were the clues that we had reached the top at the start of 2022? And what could indicate the market has reached a bottom and is about to resume its upward drift? Accepted Wisdom says that what matters is time in the market, not timing the market. I want to know if the naughty business of market timing is always a fool's errand. And in today's dumb question of the week, we ask when stock prices fall, where does the money go? Okay, let's get into it. So what's kind of nice about this bear market we're in is that the peak came almost exactly at the end of 2021, start of 2022, which makes all the analysis so much easier. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. And so this week we're going to look at, was the end of the bull market foreseeable in hindsight? And will the end of the bear market be foreseeable in some way? So maybe let's start with the hindsight one, because that's always easier. (laughs) Romin, what were some of the signs that we were maybe at the top of the market? Well, certainly this time around, I think it was very clearly driven by macroeconomic factors. And in retrospect, all of these things are easy to point out. But if we look back at the peaks of the speculative investments, I think it came in two waves. So these are the spec tech companies which sold off most. The first wave of sell-offs, when the euphoria kind of peaked, was in February of 2021. And then there was a second wave in November when things really started to tumble. So the first wave actually came just as inflation was starting to ratchet upwards very quickly in the US. So the writing was kind of on the wall that interest rates would rise at that point. And then there was the first wave of sell-offs. And then in the second wave was when the one-year interest rate really started to shoot upwards. And that was an anticipation that the Fed was going to do something. Because the language from the Fed at that point changed very quickly. Then we got the kind of second second wave. It's really about Fed policy. The end of cheap money. The end of cheap money, the regime change, the quantitative tightening. All of that, I think, was basically the death knell for all of the fluff. Yeah, because if we go back and look at it, there was some crazy sort of risk-taking and euphoria (laughs) and just dumb stuff going on with this cheap money. I mean, you can go from everything, right? Tesla was worth more than every other car manufacturer in the world combined. (laughs) But it was great. If you watched Aswath Demodaran, he basically took apart the valuation of, of Tesla. And actually, he came up with a really interesting way of looking at it. So, for example, he looked at every single valuation variable for Tesla and he turned it up to the max. So huge margins, huge revenue growth, very low cost of capital. Yeah, so I think he said the revenue of a massive car company with the very high margins of a tech company. Yeah, so I think I think if you did all of those, it would still come up with the price that was half of the share price of Tesla at the time. And he got a lot of stick for it. Yeah, and that was the best case. Yeah. <laughs> The simple fact is it is just going to be another car manufacturer at the end of the day because ultimately everything's going to be electric. That was one example of it. But there were just so many. All of the meme stocks, for example, were just you know ridiculous valuations for something which really wasn't a very good company. And what was very funny, actually, I think, was when people called out Robin Hood. There was actually a congressional meeting to discuss the fact that people couldn't buy meme stocks. Robin Hood actually had a problem with its liquidity and people couldn't buy meme stocks quickly enough. Yeah, they shut the trading down on those key days, didn't they? And that's what the complaint was. People couldn't hurt themselves (laughs) in the stock market. (laughs) That was part of the insanity. Let me run with my scissors, please. Yes. (laughs) How dare you not let me stab myself? Yeah. So anything which basically generated no cash flow or had any prospect of being profitable would be able to have a very high valuation. You just had to mention some bingo words such as cryptocurrency, blockchain. I mean, it didn't just stick to the stock market in terms of crazy valuations, did it? We saw things which, you know, are essentially worthless, in my view anyway, like NFTs balloon in value. Like if you're looking for a signal, we were at the top of the market, people trading effectively, you know, JPEG images of monkeys for millions of dollars, like literally millions of dollars that (laughs) had to tell us we were in a bit of a, a bubble. 
Yeah, I mean, I have to say the NFT thing did shock me, but I think that's more understandable than a lot of the cryptocurrency valuations, because at least that's subjective. You know, if someone likes a pixelated picture of a monkey, then, you know, why shouldn't they pay millions of dollars for it? That's fine. Good investment. Well, I think a lot of it, you know, is subjective. You know, why do people buy physical art? You know, I think that's much more difficult for me to understand than something which is like cryptocurrency, which is a financialized asset. It is a kind of investment. So it falls inside my universe, my puddle. Whereas NFTs, who knows? Yeah, but people aren't treating them as art, really, are they? They were using them as a means of speculation and like the next big craze. And you had things like a picture of a rock being traded for tens of millions of dollars. Like, that's not because people love the picture of the rock. But you look at modern art. I mean, if you look at that, a lot of it, you just think, well, why is that so expensive? Yeah, I do think that. (laughs) But that's always been a mystery to me, and I think it always will. But should you pay a huge amount of money for a token, which is like a spoof of a dog meme? Are you talking about Dogecoin here? I am talking about Dogecoin. And every time that Elon Musk actually tweeted about it, you know, the price would spike up again. Or if he was on Saturday Night Live, people were talking about, you know, (laughs) in anticipation of his appearance on Saturday Night Live, is he going to shill Dogecoin again? And the price actually increased as a result. You know, it's it's bizarre. That is bizarre. That picture of him dressed as Wario from Mario on Saturday Night Live, (laughs) that's the image that I think is the top of the market. Okay. But the valuations, the market cap of cryptocurrency, I think that was the real the real shocker. Because if you look at the market cap of, of the whole equity market globally, you know, that's around $70, $80 trillion for global equity, maybe a bit more. And at its peak, the market cap of cryptocurrency was almost $3 trillion. So it became a very large proportion of global equity markets. So I started to think, well, what's going on here? Will eventually the cryptocurrency market become larger than the equity market? Because that was looking possible. You know, if you look at the rate of growth and where it had reached, and what does that mean in terms of allocation of capital? So that's money that hasn't gone into the stock market. And remember, the stock market is actually something which is used to fund companies which produce goods and services. Whereas for cryptocurrency, what's the societal benefit of that? Well, they did name some US sports stadiums after Crypto.com. True. Yeah, the ads. But there's also a stadium curse. Have you heard about that? No, I haven't heard of that. So the LA Lakers arena is being named Crypto.com Arena in a 20-year deal worth $700 million, which seems to be the largest deal in sports history. And a lot of people say there is a a stadium curse, whereas it's an indication that companies are wasting their capital, basically, on these kind of vanity projects. And the main example used is Enron, just like a year or two before it blew up, spent a ridiculous amount of money on stadium naming rights for the Houston Astros baseball team. I mean, the other thing was at the Super Bowl, you had many commercials for cryptocurrencies, Another indication that money was being just spent on pulling more and more people into this Ponzi. And Matt Damon, of course, there were lots of celebrity sponsors and Matt Damon was one of them. Of course, that was timed absolutely at the peak. So poor old Matt Damon, he's going to be uh, regretting that, I suspect. Maybe the all-around silliest story of this bubble cycle is probably El Salvador adopting Bitcoin as legal tender. And spending a huge amount of money. I read $200 million, which is a huge amount of money for El Salvador on rolling out Bitcoin ATMs and giving Bitcoin grants to its citizens and wanting to issue so-called volcano bonds. They wanted to sort of (laughs) tap their volcanic activity to build a Bitcoin city. I mean, volcano bonds, that that must be the peak of the market, Roman. Yeah. It's like Nonsuch Castle. Have you seen that? Henry VIII's kind of imaginary castle. No. He was really into castles and he loved building them. But of course, at some point, the Treasury just had to say, look, Henry, you're getting out of control. You've got a midlife crisis. Stop building the castles. (laughs) Unfortunately, (laughs) Nayib Bukele didn't have that feedback. You know, if you are someone who's from a poor country and you have Bitcoinized your currency, then essentially you're taking people's tax wealth and burning it. You know, that's essentially what's happened. He's been burning it all the way down and he's been buying all the way down from the peak. It's also very volatile, of course. So if you're selling snacks on a street corner, why would you do that in Bitcoin? I just can't see the benefit really for the people in El Salvador. 
Or if you're Michael Saylor, another sign that this was really a problem was when companies were starting to store their treasury money. So if you've got spare cash as a company, you'd put it in something safe, usually like short-term government bonds, for example, or cash. Whereas Michael Saylor was ploughing it all into Bitcoin. This is a micro-strategy. Micro-strategy is the company. And he was actually trying to tell people, look, take out leverage, buy as much Bitcoin as you can. He's still trying to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's kind of doubled down on it. But really, this is a kind of midlife crisis thing. You know, unfortunately, some people were running a country or running a company and unfortunately got bitten by the meme or whatever it was. It's like a mental virus almost. But clearly, these people have got burnt and we may see margin calls for microstrategy, which would be catastrophic. I think they're getting into that territory, aren't they? Yeah, people said it was around 20,000 when it would happen. And we'll just have to see what happens. But yeah, I think, I think that's pretty shocking when companies, and countries are staking their solvency. Yeah, their whole future. On something which has a volatility of 80%. You know, why would you do that? Because they're mad. <laughs> well, if prices are going up, it makes sense. But of course, eventually these bubbles do burst. So, you know, in terms of signs of market top, yeah, I think cryptocurrency was one of them. NFTs was another. Meme stocks were another. Maybe us launching a podcast called Many Happy Returns at the start of 2022 was another. (laughs) (laughs) You timed it perfectly. There haven't been many happy returns, have there? (laughs) No, everything's fallen together. There's many unhappy returns so far. But look, I mean, that's the whole point, which is long-term investing. You don't worry about the kind of short-term losses. In fact, you should be entering a market when valuations are lower. So I think if you do want many happy returns... The trick is to go for smallish returns for a long period of time. I think that's much more likely to succeed than trying to get 10 times, 100 times returns with leverage and huge volatility. And that was really the kind of feeding frenzy we saw during 2021. Yeah, so there was all those things we've mentioned, the kind of crazy behaviour you get when there's cheap money and everyone's excited. But there was also, you know, more sensible indicators, which people like you might look at, right, Roman, which said we might be near a top. Yeah, so I think one of the things that really interested me was the concentration in a particular small group of stocks, which in this case was tech stocks. And if you look at the market cap of those stocks compared to the whole market, it reached a peak. Now, previous peaks that happened were in 2001. So that was the dot-com bubble. And there were previous ones before that. And that market concentration is usually a sign of a top when it reaches some critical level. So companies like Apple and Amazon just being a much bigger part of the stock market than is typical. Yeah, so for example, if you look at the tech bubble peak and look at IT as a proportion of the entire market, in 2001, it was roughly a third of the market. And at the peak this time around, it reached about 30%. And it always ends one way, which is that the companies which are hugely overvalued start to implode, valuations fall again, and you get a more even distribution of market capitalization. If you look at those big tech companies, Apple, Amazon, Google, etc., their price to earnings ratio is still a premium to the market even now. Yes, sir. As we make this podcast, the valuations of some of the FAMG stocks are pretty high. So Amazon is still trading at a forward price to earnings multiple of over 60 times. It's 61.3. But some of the others are more reasonable. Of course, we saw Meta's share price pretty much collapse, and it's now just a 12.8 times forward multiple. And Microsoft was never really that expensive. It was 23, Alphabet's 18, Netflix 15, and Apple's 20. So still expensive relative to the rest of the S&P 500, but mostly via Amazon. So that's the one which really stands out at the moment. But if you look at something like price to sales, then yeah, they're looking egregiously expensive. Yeah, so are we expecting before we reach the bottom that the premium you get for some of these valuations will come down a bit more? Yes, I'd say it's roughly halved the size of the excess. So if you look at the price to earnings difference attributable to Fang M, currently it's 0.9, at its peak it was 2.5. And I think ultimately that'll come back to zero as the fluff dissipates, as the euphoria starts to subside. Because ultimately they can't just grow at that pace forever, can they? No, this was my point. When I looked at the earnings growth of something like Facebook, if you extrapolated it, it ultimately would be multiples of the US GDP, which just was not sustainable. So clearly there had to be something that would happen that would slow things down. And of course it happened. 
it's just really hard to be a mega cap growth company, isn't it? Because you've already kind of maxed out your market, really, haven't you? You either have to move into new products or you're going to become a value stock. There are only so many hours that you can spend every day looking at a website or at a kind of app. So I think ultimately you're going to saturate that market, like you say, and that that's pretty much where they've reached, I think, already for companies like Meta. And I think when we were looking back at the end of 2021 and thinking, oh, is this the peak? Even the broad indicators of the market were sort of flashing red, really, weren't they? Not just in the tech sector. So, for example, the Buffett indicator, which is a comparison of the total stock market versus GDP. So how big is the stock market relative to the size of the economy? That was at an all-time high of over 200%. There's always an excuse. That's what's always funny about these things. People always come up with these really creative excuses as to why actually it's fine. You know, and things can carry on as they are. And the excuse this time was that money is cheap and will remain cheap. Yeah, or that there's a new economy and somehow that the old mean reversion ideas simply don't apply anymore. Or that people are simply willing to pay more for the same level of earnings, which is possible. You know, there is no kind of hard law that says that people will pay 20 times forward earnings or 16 times or 15 times forward earnings. But the simple fact is that it's always mean reverted in the past. So I think one of the most powerful concepts in investment is this mean reversion. Look for variables that do mean revert, things like credit spreads, things like valuations, and just be aware of when they are at extreme levels, because that's usually when they're most informative and when they give the best trading signals. So yeah, I think valuations, almost any evaluation that you looked at would make things look expensive around February of 2021. Because I remember we did a podcast, I think it was the second one we ever did back in January, and we said, is it a bubble? And we were like, all the indications say that this is a bubble, but valuations can stay elevated for a very long time. So it's not necessarily a good idea to sell. In fact, it's almost always better to just hold on because you just don't know. Which is still true, I think. But if you do have a large amount of capital to put into the market, that's different. So if you've just sold a business and you want to invest, well, investing when valuations are super high is probably a bad idea. It's best to drip feed that. But look, if you've been saving for the last 20 years, then should you stop saving just because valuations are high? No. And in fact, if you do hold money back, that's the catastrophic decision because valuations simply don't tell you when that's a good idea. I think there was a real confluence of events which built this perfect storm. So we had, you know, a decade plus of very low interest rates. We had the advent of commission-free trading, I think in around 2019, which pulled in a lot more retail participation and the idea that you could trade rather than long-term invest. And like you've said before, the average holding period for a stock has come way down over the decades. And so, yeah, people were doing this kind of Wall Street bets activity when their stimmy checks came in. And it's all amplified by social media. So, you know, TikTok investment advice saying that, okay, well, look, here's a price that's going up. So that's the one I buy. You know, (laughs) there's no kind of discussion of valuation or risk control. That's just a fundamental momentum strategy, (laughs) Robin. That's what a hedge fund would sell it as. That's actually true. Yeah. (laughs) But they'd have some fancy equations behind it. I mean, the elephant in the room here is the change in policy from the Fed. That's kind of the main signal we were at the top, right? Yeah, because the Fed had to do something. When inflation's surging above 8%, the Fed clearly had to do something very spectacular. And that's exactly what they've been doing. You know, the latest rate hike was 0.75%. That's the first time it's done that in 30 years. But certainly, if you look at things like mortgage rates now, those have spiked in the United States. Yeah, over 6% now, I think. Yeah. I mean, the rate of increase is astonishing. I think the negative impact will be tempered by the fact they have 30-year mortgages. But still, the rate of new approvals for mortgages and applications for mortgages has plummeted. And remortgages, yeah. And remortgages, because people just stop refinancing. So a lot of these products that are built on top of that market will become toxic. So, for example, there's something called negative convexity with mortgage-backed securities, where if you've got a 30-year mortgage, you're not going to want to remortgage at a higher rate. So when the interest rates increase, the prepayments actually slow down and the duration of those instruments, mortgage-backed securities, increases So exactly when you don't want the maturity to increase is when it increases. 
So that's what we call negative convexity. I only half followed that. Let's drill into that a bit more because it sounds super interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you mean that the prepayments decrease? So let's say you buy, you never buy single mortgages, but let's say you bought a single mortgage from Mrs. Smith, right, in Florida. And of course, if Mrs. Smith sees interest rates lower than the rate at which she financed at, so let's say she financed at 4%, it's now 2%, she's just going to remortgage at a lower rate. So what she'll do is prepay the previous mortgage and take out a new one. Okay, yeah, Mrs. Smith is a rational economic actor here. Yeah, (laughs) most people usually are when it comes to mortgages because it's very cheap to switch. So let's imagine that you were the holder of that bond. Well, interest rates had gone down to 2%. You were getting paid 4%. Woohoo! But unfortunately, Mrs. Smith remortgaged. So now you're paid back your money earlier and you've lost the income stream. So when interest rates go down the prepayment rate increases and the duration of those bonds shortens. Oh, so that's the bit I'm missing. So why does the duration shorten? Because Mrs. Smith has actually paid back your money before the 30 years is up. So the lifetime of the mortgage falls when interest rates fall. Right. You're not ever really getting that full 30 years. It's kind of, that's the maximum duration, but the effective duration is shorter than that. But you could get the 30 years exactly when you don't want it, when interest rates are actually increasing. Oh yeah, because now you'd rather the 6%, but you're only getting the 4%. Exactly. So that's negative convexity, and it's a toxic aspect of mortgage-backed securities. So who's on the wrong end of that bet then? Well, a lot of big, passive bond funds will have a large slug of mortgage-backed securities because it's an absolutely huge market. Because all of the US mortgages, these lovely 30-year mortgages, all of those get packaged up inside these structures called MBS. And usually a lot of that goes into these passive index funds. Yeah, they're in the Barclays Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index. It's a big slug of that, which is kind of what a lot of the bond funds track. Yeah, those are the global bond funds. Have I got that right? Yeah, that's right. I just threw words at it, hoping that was the correct index. It is a bit of a word soup at the moment. It used to be the Lehman Ag, which was much more snappy, but of course, Lehman didn't do so well. In terms of other indicators on the kind of Fed side of things that we were at the top, you know, we did have that yield curve inversion, which a lot of people say that's the indicator to look at. I mean, you've said before they're false positive, so it's not a perfect indicator. But this time it worked. Yeah, I mean, it predicted the pandemic. So <laughs> that's pretty <laughs> impressive, right? <laughs> but we might have had um, a recession without the pandemic. A lot of people before the pandemic came along said the market was in a bubble. Yeah, it was possible. It was possible. We'll never know, of course. But the other point I'd say at the moment is that the probability of a recession just backed out of the yield curve using the New York Fed's model is still very low. It's around 5% over the next 12 months. In the US, you mean? In the US. In the UK, it's looking much more likely that we will get a shallow recession at least. 5% seems low, though, don't you think? Well, compared to the amount of people saying that we're going to get a recession, yeah. Yeah, it seems like it's priced in, right? Everyone yeah. thinks we're going down. Everyone's assuming that, you know, the US economy is going to burn. You know? But the fact is that unemployment remains very, very low. And when you've got people in work and able to find new work, it's very difficult to have a recession in the United States. It's very unusual for that to happen. And let's not forget that's one of the indirect effects of the Federal Reserve's policy. It says it doesn't want this to happen that it can reduce demand without necessarily increasing unemployment a lot. And if you look at its summary of economic projections, that's what it thinks can happen. But at the end of the day, unemployment will increase. It's not going to be pretty. It's just a question of whether it's going to be a softish landing or a hard landing in the United States. And I think softish is more likely. The Fed will try and engineer that, but whether they achieve it is another matter. Okay, so that brings us nicely onto what are the signs that we will have reached the bottom. So I've seen you describe it before that there are these stages of a bear market, which, you know, you start with the euphoria right at the top, then you get this blow off phase. Yeah, and it's like the stages of grief. You've got the denial. So everything's fine. This is just a buy the dip opportunity. We've definitely had that stage already. (laughs) We've had that. Then you have bear market rallies, often huge rallies, sometimes, you know, 20, 30 percent when the market seems to have recovered and people pile in and they feel good about it. And then suddenly it swoons again and you find a new low. I feel like we've had a bear market rally or two. Yes, we have. We've already had two of those. Tick, so that one's done. And then you get kind of fear when people just kind of panic. I think that's where we are now. 
Fear. Yeah, I'd say fear is a pretty good description. So what's still to come? Then you have capitulation and markets drop precipitously. For example, in 2008, we saw after the Lehman collapse, markets fell, but it wasn't a catastrophic fall. But then we saw the really big falls after that. So I don't think we've had that yet. It's kind of been a slow grind downwards, mostly. It's been very orderly so far. So if you look at the VIX index, which is the fear gauge, and that tells you how much people are willing to pay for the upside or the downside on the S&P 500 as a kind of insurance policy or a kind of betting policy on the upside, that hasn't really spiked. And usually what happens is you get a very sharp sell-off and a spike in VIX. That really hasn't happened. It's just been kind of rumbling, you know, it's kind of not at super low levels. It's been flirting with 20, 22, 25%, but not the kind of 80% VIX. Oh my God, the world's ending. That's what we had at the start of the pandemic. Oh, above 80%. Yeah. Every day it was falling 6 or 7% of the stock market. So I would say, yes, we're definitely in fear, but probably not capitulation yet then. And capitulation may not happen. It may simply be that, you know, something good happens and then we have another tear upwards. But personally, I think the more likely outcome is that we will get some form of capitulation. Because the S&P is down, I don't know, 23%-ish this year. So capitulation would be oh, a huge 10% drop in a couple of days, right? That kind of thing. Yeah, so if you look at the forward multiple, this is something I post on the Slack for our members all the time. We're just at the 60-year average. So that puts us at fair value for the S&P 500. And what is the 60-year average? The 60-year average is 15 times. So people pay $15 for every forecast dollar of profit for the S&P 500 over the coming year. And that's where we are. And that's where we are roughly today. Now, normally what happens is people come down to normal valuations, sort of fair valuation, but then panic pushes us down even further. And then we get to depressed multiples when Mr. Market is very unhappy indeed and simply thinks stock is worthless. So that is the phase after capitulation, right? Which on the notes I see you've termed despair, which I like. That's the ultimate buying opportunity, the generational buying opportunity. (laughs) And we're not quite there yet. But still, you know, I think we've had a couple of generational buying opportunities in the last decade. So that's been good. If you are kind of tactical about these things, and if you're in the lucky position of having capital to deploy. So let's do the thing you're really not meant to do. What are the signs that we would be at the bottom? Because if you remember 2008, 2009, the market bottomed on March the 9th, 2009. And on that very day, the Wall Street Journal published a big column saying, how low can stocks go? That was the title. And it bottomed, I think it was 666. So it's kind of an ominous number. And Goldman Sachs put out a research piece that the S&P was going to fall to as low as 400, you know, another third off the value even at that time. But that was the bottom. And we ground up from then. You just wouldn't know it at the time. So what signs are we looking for this time? And again, with perfect hindsight, you can look back and see which indicators did tell you that was the bottom. The number 666 was clear. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we should be looking out for. It's like Bitcoin peaked at 69, didn't it? Or how about 420? Is there some kind of 420 in there? That's the next massive Bitcoin bull rally. It'll go up to 420 next time. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing which really did mark out that turning point was, if you look at the PMI indices, these are the purchasing managers' indices. And we've talked about macro indicators before, but if people aren't familiar with it, this is a way of judging whether companies are looking to the future in an optimistic way or whether they're kind of seeing contraction in their business. So it's kind of like you phone every single big company and say, how's business? And the PMI index goes above 50 if there's expansion, below 50 if there's contraction. And at that point, it was the very turning point of the US PMI index. So that was a pretty good indicator at the time in retrospect. Mm. And this is why a lot of strategists, but also investment banks, they look at PMI indices as a leading indicator. It doesn't always work, though, I have to say. I mean, that's the thing. Nothing's going to always work. But if we have this sort of battery of different things we're looking at, maybe we'll get a sense of timing. Yeah, or at least the sense that things are improving. Another point, I guess, which, for example, in March of 2020 was a turning point, was when the Fed stepped in. So when things were literally in meltdown, there was illiquidity in the treasury market, which was almost unthinkable. And credit markets had effectively frozen up completely. 
That's the point at which the Fed stepped in, and that was the turning point. I mean, literally, you can time it to the day. I mean, a lot of people say that the golden rule in investing is don't fight the Fed. Yeah. If the Fed is loosening conditions, it's going to go up. If it's tightening conditions, it's probably going to go down, which is where we are now. So what could happen is that something could break. That's usually what happens as the Fed tightens policy. People say it's just going to tighten until something breaks. That's what they usually do. I mean, that's what usually happens. They increase interest rates, they shrink the balance sheets until something goes wrong. What could go wrong? Oh, there's lots that could go wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there are some things that could go wrong where they don't care. So would the collapse in the cryptocurrency market make them step in and increase liquidity again or lower interest rates or just stop increasing interest rates? No. No, they're happy about that. Or even even the equity market, to some extent, you know, they do pay attention to the equity market. But I think part of their policy at the moment is to reduce demand. And that'll very clearly be visible in the form of equity market sell-offs. Yeah, because people said in the past that there was this Fed put, which there probably was, where the Fed would step in and loosen conditions if the market was suffering. But that's definitely taken a back seat now to fighting inflation. Yeah, I made a nerdy joke on Twitter about the Fed put expiring. It was kicked out when inflation peaked above 8%, but nobody got it. It was kicked out when inflation peaked above 8%. Well, you have these options which have kick-out clauses where the option no longer exists. It dies if a certain thing happens. And the kick-out in this case was when inflation increased above 8%. It wasn't very funny, I have to say. I mean, it's nerdy if you're aiming for that audience. (laughs) (laughs) And this is why I have so few followers on Twitter, of course. But I think the point is, yes, the Fed cares about things such as full employment because that's its mandate. But does it care about the equity market officially? No. And will it rush in to save the equity market? Again, no. Inflation's the priority here. So what will break that it would reverse course? Okay, there are certain things that the Fed would never, never, never allow to break. And that's the Treasury market. If liquidity in the Treasury market shows any sign of freezing up, that's effectively the plumbing that makes the entire global financial system work. So any sign of liquidity breaking the Fed will step in. I guarantee that. Another one that would be worrying for the Fed, certainly, is if the credit market starts to freeze up like it did in March of 2020. So if companies can't borrow money at reasonable rates? Yeah, because if companies can't borrow money, that's going to have a huge effect on the US economy, because a lot of US companies fund themselves via the corporate bond market. In Europe, less so. It's more funded via banks, bank loans. But in the US, that corporate bond market is critical. So if that starts to freeze up, I think the Fed will do something. I'm not sure what they do. What they did in March 2020 was to buy corporate bond ETFs, junk bond ETFs. I'm not sure they'll do that again, but maybe they would. But those are two markets which I think they won't let suffer. What about the housing market? Would they step in if that went into a tailspin? I think the direct housing market falls no because there's only an indirect effect on economic activity, which is something called the wealth effect, where if people feel poorer, they're less likely to consume. But, you know, that link is a tenuous one. I think the one place where they might step in would be if the MBS market, which has this negative convexity problem, which we just discussed, if that starts to show signs of breaking, so a lack of liquidity, a very large increase in the spread for those products. So if the prices fall for the bonds very sharply in a kind of disorderly way, and that causes illiquidity, all of that would effectively break the US economic system. So the Fed would step in for that too, if the MBS market breaks. So is it kind of a question of one, what's going to break first as they keep hiking? And two, how soon is it going to come? I think so. At the moment, they're just ratcheting up rates to what they consider to be a level that would actually slow down activity a bit. So that's between three and three and a half percent, somewhere around those levels. That's where they're probably intending to end the year. And then I think they'll just wait and see what happens. Because maybe inflation will have started to subside by then. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to see gasoline prices and energy prices increase year on year at this rate. We've said that before, though, Roman. <laughs> no, I mean, for, for an entire year, it'll be unlikely. So I think we started saying that in February, and now it's not much later. 
But if that happens, if prices do actually start to come down for energy, or at least not carry on increasing, then a big impulse, which is driving inflation higher, because it is a year-on-year comparison, will effectively disappear. So at that point, I think, you know, there's likely to be a at least a deceleration of, of inflation. Yeah, it's the kind of symbolic part of inflation, I think, especially for Americans, is that gas price. And if that comes down, then maybe we'll avoid a kind of wage price spiral. But there is no evidence of a, of a wage price spiral right now. Inflation is broadening. It is broadening in the United States to include services, and that's pretty shocking. Some things which aren't directly related to the pandemic or to energy have started to spike, and that's worrying. But if we look at wage growth in the United States, there's a very clear disconnect between wage growth, which is pretty high, but it's nowhere near inflation. So wage growth is, what, 4 or 5% and inflation is 9 Is that right? Something like that? That's right. That's right. So they've got negative real wage growth at the moment, and that doesn't seem to be changing. So that's good news from the Fed's point of view. Not so great for people in the US or the UK, for example, where we also have negative wage growth. And in terms of how far the stock market might fall, if we're just assuming that it's going to keep falling while the Fed's in a hiking cycle, is the question just how long is this hiking cycle going to last and how soon will they be forced to reverse course? Yeah. Or is that just too simplified for something like the stock market? Well, usually there's there's a kind of initial shock when you get the first rate hike. That's usually the case. The first couple, usually the shocking ones. Now, in this case, it's a little bit different because this latest hike which we've got was so big you know, 0.75% was huge. And they're probably going to have another 0.75 or 0.5 at the next meeting, which is just a month away. So that's a pretty shockingly fast tightening at the same time as they're shrinking the balance sheet by about a trillion a year. If you're taking away the punch bowl, it's kind of like you're also locking up the drinks cabinet and starting a prohibition phase. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I think that's the point at which we'll probably see things turn around is when the Fed starts to ease off. That's certainly going to be one of the catalysts, I think. And will that affect markets around the world? Because I know we focus on the S&P 500 and the US markets, but will the European stock markets and the Asian stock markets follow the lead of the US market here? That always happens. The US is just so big that it is the dog which wags the... World's tail. Yeah. So so unfortunately, we are the dog's tail. And ultimately, it's the US which drives these things. Risk appetite globally. And that affects almost every asset. You know, anything which is risky, so that would be corporate bonds, the housing market, I guess, and of course, equity, all of that would be affected by US policy and what happens with the US equity market. Because when I'm looking at it and thinking, oh, are we at or near a bottom now? My instinct is probably not because we've seen big falls in crypto, big falls in stocks. But housing is massively overvalued too by a lot of indicators. And that hasn't really fallen yet. So I would think, at least in real terms, we should expect that to come down a bit before we could say we're at a bottom. I'm not sure there's a direct effect between the two. I mean, with the subprime crisis, it was slightly different. It was actually the way those houses were funded which triggered the crisis. But certainly, in terms of risk appetite, if people see their house price fall, then because of this wealth effect it will probably slow down the economy and make people spend less, which of course is what the central banks are trying to do. But at the moment, real estate is kind of an outlier and I don't know how it can sustain that. It surely has to come back in line with everything else. Yeah, and guess what we've just done? We've just made an offer on our house. So, (laughs) (laughs) Good, Robin, good. I was speaking to a client recently on these one-to-ones and he said, you know you've bought at the top of the market. And I said, yes, I know. But, you know, what can you do? (laughs) And this is the problem with housing, which is that often the reason why you buy or sell isn't directly up to you. It's because you've just had babies or you need to move for some other reason or perhaps you've had a divorce and you have to sell the house. So there are reasons to buy and sell which aren't directly under your control. It only really matters if you're buying a house from a position of not owning a house. If you're selling a house at the same time as you're buying, one house equals one house. But the reason why there's a lag, you know, between these increases in funding rate and the effect on the housing market is because people agree the financing and then that lasts for a certain period of time, the guarantee from the lender, until you have to take out a new mortgage or arrange a new deal. And so, for example, we've locked in a rate that was reasonable, I think. But I think I think it will eventually lead to some kind of slowdown, if not, you know, severe slowdown in some countries. And the one which really stands out at the moment is Canada, although the US is also looking pretty expensive on a price to income ratio basis. 
The UK surely looks expensive too. And the UK as well, yeah. So here the price to income multiple is higher than it was in 2006. But if you look at the actual fall in the UK housing market after that, it wasn't huge. I think it was down by about 15%. Yeah, but rates were cut massively, which supported it. That might not happen this time. That's true, that's true. So I think, you know, part of the policy this time is not to rescue unless there's something absolutely awful happening. And just a fall in prices of 15% will not be it. The reason why they actually cut interest rates back in 2008, remember, was not because of the mortgage market directly, but because of all of the other huge economic impacts that followed from the deleveraging. Yeah, I mean, they were trying to avoid a deflationary depression when they so it's like rates have to go massively down. But on the upside at the moment, if you look at domestic balance sheets, they're not hugely stretched. Also, banks are very well capitalised, so there won't be an amplification of the crisis from banks not lending. You know, banks will be able to lend through this, even if there's a pickup in defaults or a fall in housing market. I saw that yesterday the Bank of England announced that it was scrapping its affordability checks that banks have to do before issuing mortgages, which is interesting timing. Yeah, I wonder why they did that. (laughs) I mean, have we learned nothing? (laughs) I mean, what they're saying is that Bad debt won't get out of control because there's other constraints on how much banks can lend to customers. But, you know, it's not a good signal to be sending at this time. No, I agree. And it is politically popular, I suspect. I'll just leave that one hanging there. It's weird, isn't it? We've got a populist government that's unpopular. (laughs) So having said all of this about the different timing signals you could potentially look at, I think, would it be fair to say your view and my view is that it's basically impossible to time the market reliably? Yeah, absolutely. People try and people fail. And I love this quote. This is from Terry Smith. And he said, when it comes to so-called market timing, there are only two sorts of people, those who can't do it and those who know they can't do it. Which I just think is great. So if we accept that as true, that pretty much no one can time the market reliably, how should we behave then? Okay, so if you can't time markets, have a strategy that works always or at least over the periods that matter for your life and your life goals. And that means saving whenever you can, saving as much as you can, and investing as much as you can into diversified equity. So that works very well historically. And don't hold back money from the market when valuations are high. Because if you do, that usually means underperformance, because valuations can stay high for a long period of time. Yeah, so if you're looking at it now and thinking, oh, should I be investing money in the market or should I wait for it to fall more? I mean, who knows if it's going to fall more? What are you waiting for? Yeah, don't do anything. Just carry on saving as you normally would. If you do have spare cash and we do enter this kind of capitulation phase where, you know, we're leading into the kind of despair phase, that's an incredible opportunity. So valuations which are depressed usually are great times to invest. It may take a while. You know, like after the 1929 crash, around 1930 was a pretty good time to invest. So when valuations are depressed is a good time, but it can take a long period of time for things to recover. I mean, you knew valuations were depressed back then because it was called the Great Depression. They sort of gave you the clue, (laughs) didn't they, in the name? (laughs) (laughs) They might not call it something so snappy this time. (laughs) Yeah, I think usually the government treats these kind of crises as a kind of archaeologist. You know, they look back on it years afterwards and rebrand it and they tell you what happened and why you lost money, which isn't particularly helpful. Yeah, I always thought 2008 wasn't branded very well because we kind of always just call it the 2008 crash or maybe the Great Recession, but it should have had a much snappier title. We certainly had lots of names when I was working at the investment bank. (laughs) What what was it called? (laughs) The end of my career, usually. <laughs> <laughs> you survived it? I did, yeah. I was kind of dazed. It was like being World War One. you know, people were dropping all around you. So if you were a survivor, it felt strange, but very empty. You know, the, the number of people at the desks was a lot lower. Okay, so in terms of what we should do, it's basically the same plan always, isn't it? Invest as much as you can afford, as early as you can for your whole life. Yeah, I think it's pretty simple and it works very well. But what shouldn't we do? Well, I think a lot of people get very emotional when they've lost a large amount of money. Naturally, of course you do. And you want to kind of recoil from the pain and cut your losses. But in fact, that's the exact opposite of what you should do. And doing nothing is actually a very good idea. 
So I think, you know, keep calm, remember the long term. And if you are approaching things from an emotional point of view, then just step away from it if you can. Do something else. Get out in the countryside. Do whatever it is that relaxes you. You sound like you're going to release a guided meditation for investors here. (laughs) Well, mindfulness. Yeah, I think mindfulness is probably a good thing that would go hand in hand with investing because you do have to approach it from this kind of neutral, cool mindset. So anything that helps you control your mental state is very useful. I mean, I've heard it said that fortunes are made in bear markets. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think a lot of fortunes are lost in bear markets. You know, I speak to people who have got leverage and who have lost really staggering sums of money. It's really tragic to see that. I I hate to see it. So if we could possibly help people to avoid that, you know, I think that would be worth it for that alone. Yeah, I think it's what you do in times like this which determine your long-term path. If you sell lows, which is the opposite of what you should do, then yeah, your long-term returns are going to be probably negative. But you have a lot of self-knowledge if you go through one of these crises for the first time. You learn what you are as a person. I've often heard it said that, you know, if you go on a on an adventure with people, you only know people once you've really suffered with them and had real hardship. That's when you find out what people are really like. So I think this is kind of similar in terms of self-knowledge. When you go through one of these crises and behave well or behave poorly, then as long as you adjust your behaviour, it can be a really valuable experience. I've learned not to issue volcano bombs. (laughs) It can be really difficult to not react emotionally when you see large losses in your account. And that's one of the things we often discuss in PensionCraft both in the Slack channels, but also in our members-only content. If you're interested in learning more about that, just go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is, when stock prices fall, where does the money go? Is someone getting rich when my stocks are going down, Roman? That will annoy me. No, nobody gets rich. In fact, the money's destroyed. And when I first came into finance, this was a shocking thing. I assumed that money was like energy. So energy, if you're not familiar with it, is never created. It's never destroyed. The amount of energy is constant in the universe. But money's not like that. So every time a bank makes a loan, hey presto, new money. Every time a stock market crash happens, goodbye that money. You know, it's essentially disappeared overnight. Yeah, it's just not what we think of when we think about money though, is it? We think, I have money, I give it to someone else. No, I don't. I buy something and therefore someone else gets the money, but it's going from one person to the other. Like the whole idea of wealth is not like that, which is kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? It is kind of funny money because it doesn't get realized until you actually trade it. You're right. And what we see day to day is that transfer. So during those transfers, of course, money is conserved. You do have the same amount of money before and after a sale. But if we look at the amount of wealth destruction over the past year alone, it is staggering. Absolutely staggering. All-time record? Yeah, it is an all-time record because, of course, equity markets drift up over time. So if you look at the absolute amount that's lost, every crash is bigger. But if we look at how much money's been destroyed in equity markets this year, and the sum's pretty easy to do. So you just look at the market cap of something like MSCI Acqui, which is the all-country world index. So that peaked on November the 16th of 2021, and it was a market cap of 71 trillion. That's a lot of money. A lot of money. And now, as of today, it was worth 54 trillion. That's not a lot of money. So 17 trillion of wealth has been destroyed over the course of, you know, six months. And if we look at the crypto market, that peaked roughly the same time as equity at 2.5 trillion. And now it's 0.8 trillion. So that's another 1.7 trillion, which has disappeared literally over the space of 223 days. But it was wealth that was not real wealth in the sense that, you know, it wasn't physical cash. It was just based on mark to market valuation of things. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? So the way stock prices are, it's that they're set at just whatever the value is that it was last kind of traded at. So if someone's paying a lot less for it, then the whole of that stock gets marked down. Yeah, you might think it's kind of strange because if you're holding a stock and you don't trade it, the value of your stock changes based on what other people are doing, you know, other people when they trade. So you could have 99% of the stocks not being traded on a given day, but the value of all of those stocks fluctuates based on the 1% of stocks which did trade that day. So that's the beauty of mark-to-market accounting. 
Here's where I think the misconception comes from. It's that people have heard of this idea of short selling and that there's people betting against the market and betting against specific stocks. And they kind of think, oh, the market's going down. I'm losing money on my stocks. Therefore, the short sellers are gaining on their positions, which is true, but they have independent bets with the market. They're not taking money from you. And it's usually a very small part of float of any stock, which is shorted. Yeah, and you can look it up. You can look to see what's the stock borrow. That's what they call it. Because if you wanted to short a stock, you have to borrow it from someone else who owns it, sell it, and then buy it back at a lower price, hopefully. So if you look at the stock borrow for any stock, it's never above usually around 20%, 30%. So yeah, I think expecting other people to make money necessarily in these kind of sell-offs is unrealistic. We're all getting poorer. Most of us are. And the other point I think is that, you know, some people in illiquid markets think they haven't lost money, even though they have. So for example, private equity. In that market, if you've taken a company private and let's say it's some kind of store, how do you work out the price of that store if the stock isn't trading every day because it's a privately owned thing? Well, you can't. All you can do is guess. Same thing for a house. What's your house worth? Well, all you can really do is look at similar houses in a similar area of a similar design and size and then guess what the value is. So that's the problem with illiquid assets, which is you never really know what they're worth. That's the private equity's advantage, I would say. At the moment, it certainly is, because I think what we're going to see is that a lot of these private equity companies, if they do mark to market now, we're going to see some chunky losses, put it that way. People are always slow to mark to market, aren't they? Look, for these illiquid markets, all you're doing is really just delaying the pain. And, you know, ultimately, they're just going to fall back to their true value. It just might take longer. I think one of the examples that helps me to understand that someone else isn't getting rich when I'm getting poorer is if you imagine your house and it's worth, I don't know, 500,000. If someone builds a horrible building opposite you and your house therefore falls in value, that wealth hasn't gone anywhere. It's not gone to someone else. Yep, that's a good example. I think the idea of wealth is a strange one because it's money that we never really see until we actually sell the asset that we've got. Yeah, it's all a little bit fake, isn't it? When we see these numbers of billionaires, they don't really have that money. Yeah, if they actually had to spend it, or let's say that Elon Musk sold all of his Tesla stock today, would the price that he sold at be the same as the price that we see today? No, because, you know, he'd move the market. Yeah, massively. You know, I think one of the myths is that if you see someone's stock wealth, if they had to realise it, they destroy it. I mean, it's almost like quantum mechanics where if you observe something, you change the thing you observe. So really, if you could sell it slowly, that would be one way to approach it. But even then, you could push down the price. So really, we're the lucky ones by having a very small wealth that's not (laughs) going to move the market. Well, funnily enough, as a small trader, as a retail trader, you've got a lot more flexibility than these people who manage billions. And people don't appreciate that. And it's funny because, you know, they often go kind of glaze-eyed when you talk to people who manage large sums of money and say, you know, if only I just had a billion to manage, you know, it'd be so much easier. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Gave me that tiny violin, Roman. Get it for me again. Well, it's other people's money, but the point is they could be more nimble. They've got more opportunities. They can buy small caps, mid caps maybe, whereas they can't do that if they're a huge fund. Yeah, I mean, Warren Buffett has said that if he was managing just a few million dollars, he would be getting 50% returns a year. I think we should put that to the test. Let's take all his money, (laughs) give him a few million and say, go on then, remake all your money. Yeah, I think he's he's run out of time though, unfortunately. That was part of the uh, success formula. So I think we've done a pretty good job of saying that when asset prices fall, the money goes nowhere, it just disappears. And there was a really good blog last week from No Opinion called Where Does the Wealth Go When Asset Prices Go Down? Which I'd recommend everyone reads and I'll link it in the description because it covers a lot of these arguments very well. Very well written as well, I thought. Very good. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Keep sending us your questions at mhr at pensioncraft.com and we'll tackle them in the coming episodes. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.